everyone. This is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Bryn. I'm Skip, and today we are thrilled to have Valerie Sperling with us. Professor Sperling is a professor of political science at Clark University in Worcester, Massachusetts, where she teaches courses in comparative politics and women's and gender studies. Her research interests include globalization and accountability, social movements, gender politics, patriotism and militarism, and state building in the post-communist region. Sperling's most recent book, Sex, Politics, and Putin, Political Legitimacy in Russia, won multiple awards and was listed by Russia Direct as a top 10 book on Russia in 2014. Sperling is a graduate of Yale College. She subsequently received her MA from Georgetown and her PhD from the University of California, Berkeley in 1997. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor Sperling. It's a pleasure. To get started, we like to ask our guests to talk about an inflection point or a moment where they had to pivot or adjust in their career or personal life. Could you share a moment with us? Sure. Um, so I guess I would talk about maybe how I got interested in Russia, because that's had a big impact on my professional life. Um, it goes back a long time. Uh, I, I can point to even in high school, I think in my senior year when I took European history, I wrote a paper that compared Lenin and Robespierre, you know, sort of post-revolutionary terror. Why did they both do it? I don't remember if somebody suggested that topic to me or not, but I do remember finding it interesting. And then later that semester, we read Machiavelli, and we, the assignment was to describe the perfect 20th century Machiavellian prince, and I picked Stalin. <laughs> you know? And again, I don't know if somebody gave me the idea or not, but by the time I got to college, I was certainly interested in the Cold War. You know, it's a little hard to imagine now. But we were all actually quite worried about the world coming to an end in a nuclear holocaust. And, you know, and I guess I just sort of, I had these ambitions of wanting to end the Cold War. And so I thought, well, maybe I could grow up and be an arms control negotiator. And I had taken a class at my first year at Yale about arms control and international politics. And so I thought, well, if I'm going to be an arms control negotiator, I need to learn Russian. So I set about learning Russian, and then I spent a summer doing language study in what was then called Leningrad, what's now St. Petersburg. And that completely kind of won me over to wanting to study Russia um, or to study what was then the Soviet Union. You know, I was already interested in the international stuff, but going there and, you know, seeing no capitalism, like the only signs that were up were signs about the Communist Party. <laughs> it was it just became so I became fascinated by domestic politics. So can you talk just a little bit more about being behind the Iron Curtain as a young adult as you were and what that experience was this your first time even out of the country? Was that was that it was let's see. It was not my first time out of the country. My parents had taken me on a trip to London and Paris um, the summer before my senior year in um in college. But it was um, it was really pretty wild, um, <laughs> I guess I would say, you know, being twenty and let loose um, <laughs> in Leningrad. And what, some of the things that were just so striking. I grew up in New York, you know, so I was used to being in a big city, used to the idea of danger. In Leningrad, every night between two and four in the morning, they would raise the bridges that go over. Um, the river that goes through the city so the ships could go by and stuff. But if you were on the other side of the bridge from where you're staying, from where your hotel was, you could not get back between two and four in the morning. But that was not really an obstacle because we were there in June. And it was the white nights when the sun doesn't really set until like two in the morning. Um, and it just sets, a, it kind of makes a little circle in the sky. It doesn't really set. And so what did people do is they would wander around, get drunk, 
play guitar and sing until all hours of the night. And you couldn't get back to your hotel anyway. So what was so striking to me was that we felt completely safe. I mean, maybe we were just stupid in 20, you know, maybe we were in more danger than we, you know, than we realized, but it just, the, the level of crime was so low and people were so kind and they also hadn't met a whole lot of foreigners at that point. It's a different ball game now, but back then, you know, we made a bunch of Soviet friends and it was just an, it was just sort of an extraordinary experience in addition obviously to learning a little bit about the politics and you know you know you learn a lot by going away right um and one of the things that struck us was that there were practically no garbage cans on the street and there was practically no garbage because there was no packaging because there was no capitalism so like why would you package bread for example you know in a fancy bag with like printing on the plastic well you just wouldn't do that because the bread was in the you know in the bread shop and they would just give you a loaf and it became yours and it, they didn't put it in a bag for you you had to have your own bag and nobody had plastic bags everybody had a string bag so just everything from like the little details you know to the big ones and then there was interesting political stuff like the fact that um you know, we were staying in a hotel that summer because the dorms at Leningrad State University were under renovation or the one where we were going to stay was under renovation so we stayed in, in this hotel and we were pretty sure that the room was bugged, you know, because they had an interest in listening to what foreigners had to say, I guess, at the time. And uh, and there was a radio in every room that had only one channel and couldn't be turned off. <laughs> <laughs> so we figured the bug was probably in there. It was either in there or in the lamp. <laughs> and so we did things like when we ran out of, you know, when our towels got really disgusting, we would speak loudly and clearly in Russian, you know, to the radio or to the lamp. <laughs> But uh, but yeah, that was that was a great trip. Did you get the opportunity to travel outside of Leningrad at all? And how were the rural areas different than the big city life? Um, we did. They took us to Moscow for a week, and actually, that was completely um, that was kind of overwhelming because we didn't know anybody in Moscow. Um, so you know, it was just we you know we it, it was a much bigger city, and also it didn't feel like home at all. Um, but then, yeah, they flew us to Rostov-on-the-Don, um, a city down in southern Russia, which was known for having a theater in the shape of a tractor. And I can tell you that if you kind of squint at it, it maybe kind of looks like a tractor. But, you know, that was a very Soviet kind of um, thing to do, to have a theater in the shape of, you know, a major working class object mm -hmm. like a tractor. Um, they took us to Armenia as well. And in Armenia, we stayed in, uh, in Yerevan in this big hotel that no longer uh, exists. And that was kind of different too. Um, the What I remember most probably from that trip is my roommate Andrea and I, um, we got out of the elevator one time on, on, the, uh, on the ground floor and this group of men just sort of surrounded us and started singing. We found that kind of odd. And then there was the guy in, in the cafeteria who served us our lunch every day and we weren't allowed, you know, we weren't allowed to speak anything other than Russian while we were on this program because it was a language learning program. And that was you know, fine with me. <laughs> but every day when we got to the end of the lunch line, the guy who served the hot cocoa would, would say to me and Andrea, I love you <laughs> in English. <laughs> you know? So it was just very, it was just very, um, it was really different. It was really interesting. Um, I remember they took us up to a monastery up in the, you know, up in the mountains and I think it had been a pagan, I'll say temple, you know, and then at some point 
Armenia was Christianized and it became, you know, a Christian church. And I don't know, I, did, I have lots of, lots of visual memories uh, from that. And then they took us up to Riga um, also. So it's interesting that you mentioned and bring up the, the the church and visiting a monastery because you have written about the large role that the Russian church plays in politics there. Um, an example, the, the Pussy Riot case in particular. But can you tell us a little bit more about the church and state relationship in Russia? Yeah, I think one of the things you notice if you look at Putin's rule over the course of uh, over the course of um, time since he was elected originally in two thousand until now, I would say it's gotten a lot more conservative. Um, and part of that, I think, is him looking around for sources of public support. And so Russian nationalism, sort of a conservatism, those things have become more clear in his politics. And I think that's, I think the church in some ways is a source of some of that gendered, um, sort of that kind of like essentialist gendered policy that you see in Russia nowadays, things like the crackdown you know, on Pussy Riot or on, you know, on other groups that are um, LGBT oriented. I think the homosexual propaganda law that was passed in 2013 that banned the, quote, propagandizing of homosexuality, meaning you're not allowed to treat homosexuality as equivalent to heterosexuality or to say that it's good if minors could hear you. <laughs> like, so you can't hand out pamphlets that, you know, explain about homosexuality as a legitimate um way of being if it's something that could fall into the hands of a minor. So I think a lot of that stuff has been influenced by the church. So I'm interested, you talked about rising conservatism in Russia, and that seems to be in contrast with our definition of conservative conservatism when we look at the picture of Putin, for example, riding shirtless on a horse oh, that's on the cover of your uh -huh. 2014 book. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you decided to research sex, politics, and Putin and how that book came about? Oh, yeah. So I think the genesis for that book was actually this calendar that was put out in 2010 for Putin's birthday by a group of young women who were at Moscow State University's journalism department. So that's, you know, Moscow State University is the top university in the country. So it would be like, it would be as if a group of a dozen women from Columbia School of Journalism decided to make, you know, an erotic calendar for, you know, Barack Obama, like for President Barack Obama, for President Trump. Um, and so these young women put together an erotic calendar, each one of them, you know, sort of being photographed in like Victoria's Secret-esque clothing, and each of them saying something in like in a little cartoon bubble coming out of their mouth directed to Putin, like, um, how about a third time, you know, because he had been president for two terms, and they were saying like, you know, how about a third term, but really there's that sort of sexual innuendo. And another woman is saying, the fires are out, but I'm still burning. And that referred to these fires outside of Moscow in the summer of 2010. His, his birthday is in the fall, in October. Anyway, so they put together this calendar. And, and at the time, I was interested in Russian youth politics, both pro-Kremlin and anti-Kremlin. And so I brought a couple of pages you know, that I printed off the web of this, um, this calendar with me to Russia. And when I was interviewing the youth activists, both pro and anti-Kremlin, I, I would sort of show them this and say, what do you make of that? And, you know, kind of predictably, the anti-Putin activists would say, oh, they're political prostitutes, which is interesting, right? It's a gendered way of putting down women and saying you shouldn't take them seriously, right? They're political prostitutes, they're sluts, they're sheep, whatever. Um, and then, you know, on the other side, on the pro-Putin side, they would say, oh, you know, they were just trying to be a little bit naughty. It's not serious. Nobody, well, with very few exceptions, said to me, 
gosh, that's an eyeful of sexual objectification, <laughs> you know, or isn't it kind of odd that these women who are on a pretty serious career path would be taking off their clothes like that and kind of putting out this piece of semi-naked propaganda. <laughs> so that got me um, more interested in the gender angle. And the following summer, I went back and I interviewed a lot of young feminists in Russia and asked them what they thought. And part of this analysis about, you know, the church and conservatism um, was really very much their take on what was happening. So as, as you've said, you looked a lot at uh, the gendered symbolism in Russian politics from Putin to lower level government officials. And one thing you do note in your book is that it's not just it's not just confined to Russia. You bring up China, you bring up the United States, and it's kind of a, a transhistorical and transnational phenomenon. Um, what have you found is different about the Russian case with uh, gender and foreign policy? Oh, gender and foreign policy. Um, interesting. I mean, I think that in in some ways, right, every state does this. You know, every, you know, all state leaders and government officials and, and, and people, like just regular rank and file people too, we all kind of interpret things in gendered ways all the time. I think what happened in, in Russia's case with regard to foreign policy was in the 1990s, you know, so, so Russia collapsed, so the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991. And, you know, and then the 15 states of the Soviet Union went their own way, and Russia became an independent state all on its own. And a few things happened in the 90s, the first of which was the introduction of, um, of capitalism. And you know that changed the way that Russia looked, and it also impoverished a lot of the population. Um, and so there was kind of a – and also uh, you know, there was kind of an economic collapse for Russia in general. Um, and I think people felt a lack of national pride. You know, mm -hmm. also at the same time, they lost their superpower status. They lost their ideology. Um, so there was a big drop in Russian national pride. And and I think people regarded Yeltsin after a while. You know, at the beginning, he was a big Democrat. And then after a while, he just sort of became a, a boozy um, embarrassment. <laughs> and so by the end of the 1990s, you know, when Putin becomes prime minister at the very end of 1999 and then gets, um, and then is the acting president when Yeltsin resigns and then is elected president in March of 2000, you know, he came in with this very kind of macho image, an, an image that I think to some extent was created for him. Uh, and I think the idea was that, was that you could kind of hitch Russia's um, start a Putin's wagon, you know, and so that if he came in as this strong, tough, masculine leader, that Russia itself could come, you know, as they say, off its knees and become a strong, empowered country again, sort of remasculinization of Russia, as uh, as Tatyana Ryabova um, put it. She's a Russian um, political scientist, sociologist. So I, I think that's maybe what makes Russia a little different is that it went through a real decline in uh, status and image and kind of intentionally remasculinized uh, by making Putin into this kind of macho leader, what with the, you know, the naked pictures and the, you know, um, outdoorsmanship and things like that. You talked briefly about the other post-Soviet states in that answer. Do you see any of the leaders in those states emulating Putin's masculine-focused political style? Oh, that's a good question. You know, um, some of them are still the Soviet 
dictators. And so in that sense, in the sense that, you know, dictatorship is often affiliated with masculinity, I guess I would say yes. Um, where I've been seeing it more recently, uh, you know, in Brazil, for example, the guy who was just elected in Brazil, he's very much one of these kind of super, and, and I'm not going to say Putin is super sexist, but, uh, but Bolsonaro is, you know, um, quite a lot like that and makes a lot out of, you know, sort of his masculinity and his machismo Duterte in the Philippines, the same. And, you know, right here at home, I think we have kind of a shining example um, of, of hyper-masculinity in the White House. So getting into that a little bit, um, obviously, you bring up Donald Trump. Um, in 2016, the presidential election, Russia was very much involved. Um, we have all of our intelligence agencies telling us that there was a campaign sponsored by the Kremlin to influence the 2016 election. How does this kind of relate to your argument about masculinity and, for, and Russian foreign policy? Does that tie in at all? Mm -hmm. it, it actually does um, in the same way that – so in the book, one of the things I look at is how how masculinity is used to legitimate the people on your team and undermine the people on the opposite team, right? So one of the quickest ways to um, try to undermine a male politician is to say that he's not manly, right, in some way or another. And in terms of – and so we, I saw that in Russian domestic politics and, you know, you can see it in American politics too. In terms of Russian foreign policy um, towards the United States – there's um, there's an interesting thing I think going on now in the way that Trump is portrayed with respect to Putin. Um, when Trump is being critiqued, one of the critiques that you see most often is, um, am I allowed to use bad words on the radio? You'll see posters like Trump is Putin's bitch, right? And so like at the Women's March, um, you know, following the inauguration, keep your tiny hands off my rights. You know, so what are these kinds of, um, what are these kinds of messages really saying? They're saying that uh, on the one hand, Trump is insufficiently manly. He's got the tiny hands, therefore the tiny genitalia, therefore he's a bad or illegitimate president. You know, to my mind, there are plenty of things to critique Trump on as a president that you don't have to go to that lowest common denominator that only reinforces sexism and patriarchy and homophobia. But with, um, with regard to the relationship between Trump and Putin, that's where I think you see a lot of it is um, is trying to delegitimate Trump by saying he's in thrall to Putin in some way, in a way that is feminine and therefore makes him increasingly kind of illegitimate as a strong um, president for the United States. So we've talked a bit about your research on Russia, but another really significant portion of your academic work focuses on globalization and human rights. Mm -hmm. As a little preview for your attack tonight, uh, your your attack is titled "Are Women's Rights Human Rights?" What's your answer to that question? <laughs> yes, yes, they are. But if only people would recognize that as being the case, they would be observed more frequently. Um, so that's that's the off the cuff answer. Yeah, this um, the talk tonight is on a book that uh, that I have that's just going to be coming out in a couple of months that's co-authored with my colleague Lisa McIntosh Sundstrom at University of um, British Columbia and my colleague Melika Seoglu, who's a Clark PhD, who's from Turkey. And there we're looking at gender discrimination cases in Russia and in Turkey and from Russia and Turkey to the European Court of Human Rights. So the last question we ask of all of our guests is, what is your personal definition of success and how would you help students define success for themselves? That's a good question. Um, you know, I think 
you know, there's so many different ways of looking at, you know, success. You know, I th you're kind of interviewing me in my capacity as a professional. So probably that's what I should, um, probably that's what I should talk about. When I get up in the morning, you know, and I get dressed and ready for work and I gather my belongings and I get in my car and I start to drive, I have about an hour, an hour and 15 minute commute to work. Um, you know, sometimes you're tired, you don't really feel like going to work or whatever, but I generally feel there's nowhere else I'd rather be going to work today. You know, I, I love my job. I love teaching. I love doing the research component of my job. I even, dare I say, enjoy the service components of my job where you have to serve on committees. Um, so I think success in a way professionally is doing something that you love to do, um, something that you're happy to get up in the morning and go and do, even if you're tired, even if maybe, you know, you don't, um, you know, you don't feel completely en enthused in the moment. By the time I get to work, um, I'm just really happy uh, to be there doing what I get to do, the fact that I get to do this for a living. And that's what I would, I think that's how I would define success. And obviously in, a, in good measure, it has to do with having good fortune um, as well. So unfortunately, that is all the time we have to, for today. But thank you, Professor Sperling, for joining us. And to all of our listeners, remember to stay hungry. You're welcome.